Alert Medic 1 respond. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Hello and welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. My name is Mustafa Sadiq. I'm Ken Sanner. Today we're going to be continuing our conversation on airway management by discussing supraglottic airways. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Bitberg. Good to be here. I think SGAs end up being the tool that nobody wants to use because we think that if we can't get the tube, we fail. I think, especially in my practice, I've only had to use them a couple times, and I've definitely failed at using them, so I think it's a good thing that we're talking about them today. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a huge image in EMS, particularly for paramedics, that you know you have to get the tube, you never give up, you just keep going for that tube, it's this mark of pride, it's this real part of the identity of a paramedic. But the reality of the situation is if you can't get a tube within two attempts, there's absolutely no shame in going to a supraglottic airway. They definitely save lives, they're a great and valuable tool in our toolbox. Here's the sad truth. There's been many recent very high-quality studies that have looked at SGA versus uh, ETI, uh, endotracheal intubation, particularly for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And those tend to be the larger registries, more organized registries where data is collected, looking at whether or not the airway is successful, the timing to successful airway insertion. And when we talk about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, very important metrics like uh, return of spontaneous circulation, ROSC, pulse at hospital arrival, and then most importantly, discharge from hospital with good neurologic outcomes. So those those out-of-hospital cardiac arrest studies that look at SGA versus endotracheal intubation usually have the most organized enrollment and, and some of the biggest numbers. And we can delve into a few of the recent studies, but most of them show either no difference in outcomes between SGA and endotracheal intubation as far as favorable outcomes. And unfortunately, most of them show very, very low success rates with initial intubation attempts with endotracheal intubation versus very, very, very quick, very efficient SGA time to insertion. If you kind of fast forward through those study designs to, you know, at the end, after I've tried a couple times, the success rates between SGA insertion and endotracheal intubation tend to kind of equalize in the high 90 range, 90 plus percent range. But that initial attempt is usually on the order, and then I'll show you some recent studies, 50% for endotracheal intubation versus already in the 80s to 90s with SGA insertion. And you talk about kind of like the pent-ultimate call where you're doing advanced airway management. Now, granted, the AHA has completely de-emphasized early endotracheal intubation from the cardiac arrest management scheme, favoring just good compressions, passive oxygenation, and then maybe BVM ventilation, maybe an SGA. So one of the things to, to think about as we talk about SGAs is there's a declining kind of indication list Uh, for endotracheal intubation, the classic example being cardiac arrest. I'm really glad you brought this up, Dr. Wittberg, because this was actually something that I wanted to touch on with you. As you kind of indicated there, there's definitely some information coming out that SGA placement can have a higher survivability for the cardiac arrest patient than ETI. And I just wondered what you thought maybe some of the causes or implications of that are. 
Yeah, so let's just talk about, if you want to look at one good trial comparing SGA to ETI, Pragmatic Airway Resuscitation Trial, the PART trial, which was published in Resuscitation, the journal Resuscitation in 2016. I'll just quickly rifle through what it taught us. So it's 27 EMS agencies that compared King laryngeal tube, King LT airways versus endotracheal intubation and out of hospital cardiac arrest patients. The trial compared those two, it was a randomized trial. So these 27 different EMS agencies for a couple months would do primarily or first line King LT insertion, and then they would flip flop and then they would do endotracheal intubation back and forth. What I'll tell you is one of the problems with this trial being perfect or limitations of the trial would be that you see the airway device that you're using. It's in your hands when you're doing it. So you can't truly do the most high quality study, which would be a blinded randomized control trial, but it was cluster randomized in that different agencies would alternate between which primary device they would put in. The EMS agencies were allowed to perform a rescue airway uh, management if they were not successful with their initial SGA, if they were in the SGA group or endotracheal intubation, if they're in the intubation group. Primary outcome that they looked at was survival to 72 hours after the arrest. And then they looked at some secondary outcomes, which were ROSC, defined as pulse present on arrival to the hospital, survival to hospital discharge, and then neurologically favorable survival at hospital discharge, which I would argue would be the most important thing. You want your patient to be able to walk out and get back to some degree of quality of life. Patients were enrolled between 2015 and 2017. There were 3,000 plus subjects that were enrolled and about 1,500 were randomized to the King LT arm and similarly about 1,500 to the endotracheal arm. The first and most important thing to take away from the trial is the elapsed time from EMS arrival to insertion of the supraglottic airway, the King LT, was shorter. So the average for the king was 11 minutes for endotracheal intubation, 13.6 minutes, which is important when you're talking about uh, interrupting chest compressions. The airway success rate, probably the most important thing on initial attempt for the king LT group, what do you think it was? Probably pretty for the King LT, probably pretty high. Yeah, I'm going to say 85 to 95% probably. Absolutely. So it was 89.9% for successful insertion with the supraglottic airway, which in this case was the King LT. For the endotracheal group, 51.3%. Oh, wow. And the endotracheal group was much more likely to require more than three insertion attempts. And like I said at the, the beginning of this conversation, eventually their success rate got up into the 90 range, but it was usually after three attempts. And think about each intubation attempt and, and how that might affect the uh, compression fraction. So all these things kind of tie together. Main outcome, survival was in the King LT group, 18.3 versus the endotracheal group, 15.4, which was statistically significant. So it's only a 2.9% difference. But one of the things that the authors of this trial pointed out that if every EMS system across the country moved to a King LT with a 2.7% increase in survival rates, there would be more than 10,000 lives, extra lives saved in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest each year. Just go on just a little bit more about the study. The intubation success rate, only 51% in this study was much, much, much lower than reported in a lot of, lot of other pre-hospital intubation series. And it goes back to another comment that I made earlier, is that even before this study, 
a lot of ALS agencies were realizing the declining opportunities to train in endotracheal intubation, the declining opportunities in the field to perform the procedure, and as such, were already recommending SGA insertion as part of their protocols. So uh, that may be a reflection of kind of the times we live in and and the, the declining opportunity for ALS providers to intubate. One other thing I would point out, I think a lot of us are familiar with the CARES registry, which is the cardiac arrest registry to enhance survival. The CARES registry, actually, if you look at the data around uh, success with intubation, it's a lot higher in the CARES registry. An important thing to remember is the CARE registry is just a compilation of data and not a randomized trial the way this is this has been uh, set up. There's been uh, two other trials that have recently uh, kind of reinforced what I'm telling you with regard to the, the PARS trial. There was a trial in 2013 published in the British Medical Journal, BMJ, called the Airways 2 trial. It was a trial of over 2,000 adult patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest performed in France and Belgium, found no survival difference between BVM versus endotracheal intubation. And then there was another trial that was done, published in JAMA in 2000, if you want to talk a little bit about kids, 830 children, no difference found in survival or neurologic outcomes between BVM only versus BVM with endotracheal intubation. Now, those two trials didn't look at supraglottic airways, but what they do reinforce is that there may not be a great reason to consider intubating people in cardiac arrest. Uh, long story short is a lot of people latched on to the PARTS trial and EMS systems that had not already gone to recommending SGA as a primary airway did so. Mm-hmm. And just of note, the PARTS trial was for uh, all patients. They, they had to be uh, medical cardiac arrest. Couldn't be a, a trauma cardiac arrest. It excluded trauma patients. Yeah, so I think, you know, the real take-home point is that when it comes to airway management, the most important thing is good BLS maneuvers. Everything after that is just a plus. Certainly there's indications or instances where advanced airways are more important. But I I think it really kind of is a good segue to talk about this next topic, which is should supraglottic airways be available for BLS providers? And if so, what types or all types? You know, what's really the benefit there for the BLS provider? So we should probably just talk about some of the common SGAs that are out there. Mm -hmm. I just jotted down a quick list. So most of the SGAs that are now in EMS systems are the second generation SGAs. There is the King LTD, which I think is is pretty widespread at this point, probably because some of the the trial that I just mentioned used it. It's a second generation uh, supraglottic airway. I'll just talk about one unique facet of each SGA that we list. The, The King LTD has two cuffs, whereas the others do not. When you insert it, ideally the smaller cuff and the smaller portion of the tube goes all the way down into the esophagus, the smaller cuff gets inflated and isolates the esophagus, and then the larger hypopharyngeal balloon isolates the airway, and that balloon inflates above the cord so that when you attach the BVM and you squeeze it, you're forcing air beneath that second huge balloon down through the cords, and then you have that lower balloon in the esophagus that's not allowing air to to go down into the esophagus. The LTD, like a lot of the second generation devices, also has the ability to put a very, very small diameter orogastric tube uh, down the top. There's a little kind of hole on the back of it. So you could hypothetically drop that if you have some time during any sort of call, a medical or a rest call, and decompress the stomach to kind of optimize the uh, excursion of the diaphragm and, and, and improve your oxygenation and ventilation. So that's the number one, probably most common supraglottic airway that's out there. 
The LMA Supreme is out there, also a second generation device. They market themselves as having, quote, a dual seal. It's really just one cuff, but the tip of the cuff kind of goes down, occludes the esophagus. The balloon gets inflated, creates that hypopharyngeal seal, and that too has a port down which you can snake an orogastric tube and decompress the stomach. And then the probably uh, the third one, which is really kind of coming out into a lot of systems now because of uh, some success rates in airway management uh, on the European side of things, is the iGel. It too is a second generation SGA. And by the way, I don't work for any of these companies. The iGel uh, markets itself as uh, being unique in that it has a gel-like non-inflatable cuff. It doesn't rupture. You basically, it doesn't get any easier than this. You, you do a good cross finger technique. You kind of uh, put it along the palate, work its way down. The tip also sits near the esophagus. The gel portion forms a seal on the hypopharynx. And, and besides being a gel cuff that doesn't need air, and uh, the second thing that they market themselves on is it creates less compression around the glottis, which in certain studies has been shown to impair carotid flow, carotid blood flow to the brain and cerebral perfusion. There aren't any great studies that actually look at that, but there are some pig studies out there that have looked at LMAs and uh, either typical inflation or overinflation causing compression of the carotid sheath and limitation of carotid blood flow to the brain during CPR. Mm. Um, so those are the three primary SGAs that are in use. And you had asked about kind of BLS providers using SGAs. You know, th there's a pretty, you know, people think they're very easy to insert. And I got to tell you, and I'm curious what your experience is. I've even watched ALS providers starting to put them in. There's a pretty steep learning curve on how to actually open the mouth wide enough to get them in, how to slide it down kind of the top of the airway, the, the palate down towards the hypopharynx, and how to get it well seated and create a good seal. So I think BLS providers, like ALS providers, uh, with just a little bit of training, can, can learn how to use these devices easily. But they have to be regularly trained and retrained and actually have some real life mentored supervised insertions where they learn kind of the nuances of, of how to seat it properly and, and create a good seal once the device is in and yeah. recognize, most importantly, recognize when it's not properly seated. And therein lies the importance of continuous waveform capnography, both for your supraglottic devices and your infraglottic endotracheal tube devices. I think a big learning curve for me was getting the mouth open. Like you learn the, uh, what is it, the, the finger? Cross finger the, technique. The cross finger technique, but that's like actually, uh, it's kind of hard to do in like real patients. Like, so, so, you know, this, this deserves emphasis. Yeah. So I was very, very fortunate during my residency at the University of Maryland to do most of my airway training in the trauma resuscitation unit at Chuck Trauma. And they're pretty, uh, some pretty damn good anesthesiologists there. And I remember getting my hand slapped. I'll never forget this. And it's something I see a lot of paramedics do. Good old fashioned laryngoscope. I started introducing the tip of, of, of the metal laryngoscope through the teeth. So the patient would have, would they be unconscious? Their mouth would be not gaping open, but it would be open enough where I could actually put the tip of the laryngoscope kind of on their tongue and start you know, slotting it down and doing progressive visualization like we talked about on one of our prior podcasts. And I clearly remember doing that once and getting my hand slapped because I hadn't taken the time to do a really, really excellent cross finger technique way back on the molars, distracting the mandible, pushing it down. And, and it's, you know, people have taught it to me and I've taught it at advanced airway courses. 
would you rather start looking through like the keyhole or kind of creak the door open and see what's going on in the bedroom? You know, mm-hmm. open that, open your, you know, make a huge purchase and, and open up your view and get, and get it wide. Mouth opening is, is one of the things that I find in remediation and reteaching ALS providers, whether it be DL or VL. I usually have to spend quite a bit of time going over not only the importance, but good technique for mouth opening. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly important for SGAs because the volume of, of the supraglottic airways is such that you really need to open up the mouth wide mm-hmm. to get your fingers in and work that device down and seat it properly in the hypopharynx. I think that one of the big issues with SGAs is training and education, both at with my teaching at the college and at the academy, I noticed that people have this attitude that SGAs are really easy to use. They don't require a lot of practice. They don't. A lot of people don't take them seriously. They don't realize there is some finesse and technique that's required to actually operate them. So when people don't take things as seriously as they should, you know, they don't pay as much attention. They think, oh, I just shove this tube in there, blow up the balloon, and I'm done. And as you said, it's really not that simple. You have to really get the mouth in the proper position. You have to make sure the device is inserted to the appropriate depth. And you have to know, you know, basically what you're doing back there uh, in order to get the result you want. It's you've talked about this too. It's the pride thing. It's, you know, why did I become a paramedic? I became a paramedic for a couple of reasons, you know. You know, some people like to be in charge, you know, some people it's a nicer uniform with some more pins. Uh, but endo- endotracheal intubation uh, is one of those things that has always been so near and dear to the identity of a paramedic. And, and just like, you know, we, we see in the fire culture this reluctance to change. And I think back to like, you know, when when uh, SCBA was introduced and all-time firefighters would be like, what do we need this for? We're, we're going in. We have to... We have to embrace evidence-based medicine. We have to embrace best practice. We have to embrace that the sexy procedure may not be the right procedure. And in a lot of these, particularly these cardiac arrest registries, there was no difference between BVM ventilation and endotracheal intubation. And in the parts trial that we spoke about, uh, there was actually improved outcomes, neurologically favorably improved outcomes in people that had SGA insertion over endotracheal intubation. And we, we all know, it's common sense. We've all been to that code. We've watched, oh, I, I'm not gonna quote, um, I have air quotes in my hand right now. Uh, we're not gonna interrupt CPR to do this intubation. I got to tell you, a lot of people hit pause on their automated Lucas devices oh, yeah, or whatever absolutely. they're using. That, yeah. They go, oh, can you, can you just hit pause for a minute? I'm, I'm almost there as they try to deliver the tip of the ET tube to the glottis. You're lying to yourself if you're not going on calls and seeing people interrupt oh, high-performance, yeah. high-quality CPR and reduce their compression fraction as they're almost about to intubate the patient and then they don't get it and they say, okay, restart, let me reload, recalibrate and do it differently the next time. SGAs have emerged as a better way to do it. And culturally, we are a bit reluctant to, to make that big culture change and kind of move that away from our identity as a paramedic. So I think uh, as we finish up, any last minute recommendations, Doc, from, from your end? Um, SGAs? SGAs, you know, you, you know, like with everything else, you, you have to be familiar with the equipment that, that you work with. You have to train like you work. So if you use Kings, you got to train in your mannequin lab or wherever you train your cadaver lab with Kings. If you use iGels, use iGels in your training. Uh, you have to open them up. You have to have a couple open SGAs and, and play with them. If you are a new SGA inserter, you need some mentorship to make sure that when you actually start inserting them, that you are putting them in correctly, that you are seating them properly. 
And that is the value of actually having senior supervision in the field and having a second ALS provider with you who may have a little more experience. And then lastly, you know, uh, we, we harp on this a lot. End title capnography is the gold standard for measuring kind of the quality of not only that your airway is in the right place, it's in the right hole, your trachea, uh, the quality of your resuscitation, optimization of your compression fraction. You should be hooking up continuous waveform and tidal capnography to your SGA devices to make sure, A, that they're properly seated. Uh, if you are doing a resuscitation, that you're doing a good compression fraction, adequate CPR quality and so forth. But also, because of the propensity for these devices to shift a little bit, the seal to become unsealed during transport and transitions of patients between the scene, the medic unit, and the hospital, that continuous waveform will be your layer of vigilance and safety and security, knowing that the SGA is staying in good position as you continue to ventilate the patient. All right. Well, thank you, Moose. Thank you, Dr. Vitberg. And most of all, thank you for listening to us today. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. Please make sure to check us out on Facebook. Give us a like. Rate and review us on your podcast app of choice or on Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple iTunes. And don't forget to check out our blog, www.alertmedicone.com. And please join us again next week for another exciting episode all about EMS. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. 